Well, good morning. Uh, before the summer of my senior year, I realized because I went to school, I went to college as a music major and switched a year and a half in, um, that if I only took two more music history classes, I could actually get a minor in music. And I was like, that sounds like a plan. I'll do it. And then looking back on it, I realized it was a terrible decision for three reasons. Number one, again, not very interested in music history, uh, but I was like, again, if I do this, I get a music minor. No one has ever asked me what I minored in in college. So that was a waste of time. Number two, it was my only Friday morning class. And because it was two semesters long, I had to do it the entire senior year. Otherwise, I would have no Friday classes, which would have been awesome. And then number three, probably most importantly, it was one of the hardest classes that I took. And when you're a senior in college, you ain't about that life anymore. And so that was not fun. What particularly made it difficult was every Friday we had a quiz. And she would, we would have five songs that we had to learn every week. And the, so the first week it was on all five songs. The second week there was then 10 songs, and she would only choose five of them. The third week there was 15 songs. Again, she would only choose five. So you'd have to learn all these songs in case it was what she would, what she would choose. And so she would play five songs. And what you'd have to do is write the composer, uh, the name of the song, the time period it was from, the, the form of the song, a couple other things. And if you're a typical music major, you know, you're actually like listening to this music, it's not as difficult as it appears because you might get the composer wrong or you might get the name of the song wrong, but you know the styles, you know the genres, you know what it sounds like when certain things were written at certain times. And so you can still get most of the songs right, most of the questions right, but just having a general knowledge of music history. Me, on the other hand, was I would just stare at the sheet, try to, I would listen to five seconds of each song so that I would know, oh, this is that song, and try to remember everything about that song. Now, here's the thing. The average person doesn't know anything about human hist or music history, so you might look at me and think, Dylan actually knows something about music. People that actually know something about music would look at me and be like, he don't know anything, right? <laughs> what happened, right? It appeared, based on I could write a few things down, I knew a few things about a few composers, a few songs, whatever, it appeared that I knew about music history, but I didn't actually know about music history. Like, there's a difference there. I knew some things intellectually about it, but I didn't actually know it. And I share that story because the question we're looking at this morning is this. How much do you know about God? And it's not necessarily how much do you know about God, but how do you know that you actually know a lot or a little about God? That is what we're going to be looking at this morning, and we're going to find the answer to that question may not be what you think that it is. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Maybe you've got an app on your phone. If you don't have a Bible and would like to read along, there's a black one in front of you. We'll be page 1015 there. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take that home as our gift to you. Uh, we are in a series called Masterclass right now. We're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. But it was written by this guy named Paul to the church in Corinth within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Calling it Masterclass because he's showing us how the gospel impacts every single aspect of our life. And in this chapter, if you were here last week, chapter 7, 8, and 9, uh, Paul is referring to or uh, is answering specific questions that the first Corinthians had written to him. Now, what makes this a little bit difficult is we don't know actually what they're asking. And so some of these things can be hard to understand. What is he actually referring to? However, even in the midst of that, we can still glean the, the main points and the ideas of what Paul is trying to say. Now, for those of you that are astute, you'll realize that we did not, uh, if you were here last week and we're, no, we're jumping to chapter 8, we are not reading the last seven or 15 verses of chapter 7. It's not because I'm afraid to talk about what's in there, because if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that's true. Uh, no? Okay. Anyway, 
Go listen to it if you want to. Uh, but the reason why is because last week Paul's point was this, that God has you and I where we are for a reason. And so while the last 15 verses are interesting, I think you should go read it. The main point was the same, that you and I are to be faithful where God has us. And so instead of repeating that message twice, we'll go ahead and jump in chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, Paul is answering a question here about food sacrifice to idols. He says this, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. So again, we don't know the specific question, but the context is this. In Corinth, there are a lot of pagan temples where, especially in that period of time, you would have a lot of butchers would set up shop in the temple or near the temple, and they would make their meat, kind of think of it this way, kind of kosher for those pagan gods so that if you wanted to, you could go sacrifice that meat to idols, or you could go eat the, eat the meat in the temple as a, as a uh, act of worship to the idols. And so the questions were, as believers, is it okay for us to eat this meat that was prepared to be sacrificed to an idol? So the Jewish believers who were becoming Christians and were reading this, they had a lot of their own kosher laws before Christ came. And so for them, they're wondering, well, that's not, it's not prepared the way that we're supposed to eat food. And so are we allowed to eat it? Or the Gentile believers, those that were not Jews that became Christians, many of them may have used to sacrifice and participated in the temple worship. And so they're, now they're wondering, now that we're Christians, can we still eat that meat or is there something wrong with it? And so he says this, that we know we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So Paul begins to answer this question by saying this, what is more important, knowledge or love? What's more important, to know what we're supposed to do or the right answer to every question or is it love? He says this, verse 2, If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. In other words, he's saying what you would think he's saying, that those of us that walk around thinking we know everything, typically those are the people that actually have a lot to learn. In verse 3, But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. His point is simply this, that as followers of Christ, if you are in Christ, that we ought to be marked by love. In other words, loving God is greater than, then knowledge or knowledge of God. If we actually know God, what Paul is saying here is that it will lead us, it will drive us to love. And so what we want to know as we begin into this text this morning is this, that you cannot know God if you do not love. You cannot actually know God and who he is if you do not love. If you have actually experienced Christ and the love and the grace that he has given you, it will drive you to love Others, In other words, it's not about memorizing all the verses or having perfect Sunday attendance or reading your Bible every day. All those things are great, but if they do not lead us to love, it is showing that we actually do not know God the way that we think that we might. And I shared this story before because it's just so impactful for me. I remember in middle school, uh, we would have you know Wednesday night youth group church stuff, and oftentimes my dad would take my older brother and I to the subway near our house, and then we would go to church. And so we, we, we formed a really good relationship with the owner of the subway. And I'm one of those people that cannot be late to anything. Like, even if I'm just hanging out with my friends at, like, 7 o'clock, I'll be there at 6.55. Just, I just cannot be late. It drives me crazy. And so one Wednesday night, it was taking a while. We were clearly going to be late, and so I think my dad noticed that I was annoyed. And so we finally leave the subway. We're going to be late to the, the youth group stuff. And my dad looks at me, and he knows I'm annoyed, and he, and he tells me this. He says, look, I know that you wanted to be on time, and by talking to this man, we're going to be late. But that is actually what it means to, that, that, that actually shows, that, that is what God would want us to do. Like, would you think, do you think that God would rather us be, time, be on time to church service or actually love people? You see, in that moment, my dad demonstrated that he knew more about God than I did. It's not to say I was not saved, right? But because he had known God and known that God has called us to love people, his knowledge of God said, I know that we're going to be late to this, but I'm having a conversation with this guy and I'm going to love him and I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to put people first. That's what Paul is saying. 
that we cannot know God if it does not lead us to love. We're showing that you and I might not know as much about God as we might claim to think that we do. So he continues in verse 4, actually answering the question that they wrote to him about. He says, about food sacrificed to idols then, again, knowing love is more important than knowledge, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. So ultimately he's saying this, that these idols, whether they're built by wood or stone or whatever they're made of, they ultimately represent nothing because those gods do not exist. The only God that exists is God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. That is the only God. So although they're worshiping something, you just need to understand that what they're worshiping actually represents nothing. They're really worshiping nothing. So verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. There is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. In other words, he's saying this, that although these idols represent nothing, he's not downplaying the evil and darkness that they represent, that worshiping false gods can lead to darkness and evil that is not good for people, is not good for us. So even though that those things may evoke evil as causing some of the people that would worship these gods to do evil things, the point is simply this, that even though those gods can be represent evil, they are actually representing nothing or they are actually I mean, they're not representing any God that actually exists. So his point is this, that there is nothing inherently wrong with eating the meat because they're not actually being sacrificed to anything. So there's nothing actually sinful about eating it because they're not being offered to anything that's actually real. But having said that, he says this in verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. So not, not everybody knows that it's actually okay to eat this meat. In fact, you didn't know it. That's why you wrote to me this question. And so he says this, some having been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat the food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, uh, that some of the people, due to their past, maybe they were Jews, and so they always viewed eating that meat as wrong, or maybe they were Gentiles, those who were not Jewish people, who used to eat the meat and used to uh, participate in the ritual sacrifices at the temple. For them, they cannot eat the meat with the conviction that it's actually harmless. So although it's not inherently sinful for them to eat it, for, uh, for us to eat the meat, for them it actually is because it reminds them of things that they used to do or things that they want to run away from. Therefore, again, even though it's not a sin, they must avoid it. Now, as a side note, that might, I don't know what that might be for you. So for us, we're not in that uh, certain uh, context, but it could be different things. Like, so for us, for example, there is nothing inherently sinful about drinking alcohol. Now, the scripture talks about being drunk and wanting to avoid that, but you could not point to scripture and say, it is a sin to drink a beer. However, maybe you're a former alcoholic. Maybe your family has a history of alcohol. And so for you, you have chosen to avoid it because of the history or what it might do to you. So although it's not a sin to drink it, it is wise for you to avoid it. Or maybe social media. You know, social media is inherently neutral. But some people spend way too much time on it. Some people have been hurt by it. And so for them, they'll, they'll avoid social media, even though it's not sinful, because it produces negative effects in their life. And so whatever that might be for you, if you have something in your life that the Scripture would not define as sin, but it is a conviction for you to avoid it, you need to know that the wise thing to do is to avoid it. That is what Paul is saying here. And so he continues in verse 8. He said, food will, bring, will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat it, and we are not better if we do eat it. In other words, food is neutral. It doesn't matter if we eat it, th this meat, or if we don't. Verse 9, but be careful that this right of yours, in other words, this freedom in Christ of yours to eat the meat, is in, uh, right of yours, in no way 
becomes a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, that it would not hurt those that you are in relationship with. Even though it might be not, maybe you can eat it with a clear conscience. You might know people that can't. And so knowing that, you need to avoid causing a stumbling block to those who are weak in this area. Verse 10, for if somebody sees you, the one who has knowledge, again, you know what is right, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. In other words, you know that there's nothing inherently wrong with eating the meat, but you also know that it is a stumbling block for some of your fellow church family. And, you're, and so what happens is if you decide to eat the meat, your knowledge is not actually producing love. Your knowledge is not actually producing love. And so here is why we need to know that you cannot know God if you do not know love, if you do not love, because knowledge that does not lead to love is not of God. It's not to say you can't know things. It's not to say it's necessarily wrong, but it is not godly knowledge. If you know something that is an issue or a struggle for somebody in your life and you do not use that knowledge to love that person well, you're missing the point. And that's what Paul is saying here. So let me give you a personal example for me of how this has played out. Uh, many of you know or are familiar with my story. When I was in college, uh, I lost my dad to a suicide. And it was extremely hard, extremely difficult, uh, was extremely difficult time. But because of that, uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I was in this cohort through Acts 29, which is the church planning network that we're a part of. And it was a year-long cohort. And we met uh, once a, four times over the course of the year. Uh, it was a two-and-a-half-day thing in Jacksonville, which was awful because I hate driving, and I had to drive by myself every single time. But it was okay. The court was awesome. It was, it was about eight or nine of us uh, guys that had planted, were, and their churches were either two years old or less. And so, again, we're in the same season. We're learning from one another, we're, we're practical things, spiritual things, praying for one another. It was a great time building relationships. Um, and one of the things that was the most fun about this cohort is that every Tuesday night, we would get to go out and do something fun. So one time we went paddleboarding on this really awesome lake. Uh, one time we went to uh, Top Golf, which is a three-story driving range where the ball gets tracked wherever you hit it and you play all these games. Uh, one time we went to an indoor go-karting place, the, the, the super fast go-karts. So they were, it was also always a lot of fun. And, and one of the cohorts, as we were leaving, Adam, who led the cohort for us, was telling us, that next time, the event thing that we're going to do, we're, we were going to go to this outdoor, outdoor barbecue and gun range, which if you're a stereotypical man, is heaven. So you literally, you're outdoor shooting guns, and they grill a steak and pig and pork, right? And so you can eat as much as you want. It's like unlimited, and he's like, the meat is actually good too. And so you're shooting guns as much, you know, as much as you want because you're there for a few hours. There's like no time limit or there's no restriction on ammo or anything like that. And so everybody's like, this is awesome, right? This is going to be amazing. We're going to shoot guns. We're going to eat meat. Everything's going to be awesome, right? And I'm like, and so I'm sitting there, and as we're, after the cohort's over, everybody's leaving, and I, I pull Adam aside, and I just tell him this. I said, um, I'm excited. Everyone's excited to go, and, you know, it's going to be fun. I just want you to know that when we're there, I'm not going to shoot any guns, and I'm not against guns. I have no problem with guns. I don't even mind being around people that shoot guns. But given my history, guns make me a little uncomfortable, knowing that how easy it is to end your life with a gun. And so um, I'm going to be there, but I'm just not going to shoot. It's not because I'm not going to have a good, not, not, it's not because I'm not having a good time. It's just I feel uncomfortable with a gun in my hands. And, uh, and, and so I go home, and that, that was kind of it. And, I, and the next cohort is coming, and so I'm driving down to Jacksonville. And as I'm driving down, I'm reminded, oh, we're going to do this gun range thing. And I was like, maybe I should just shoot because if I don't, everyone's going to ask why. I'm going to tell them, and they're going to feel bad. And so I'm kind of like uh, kind, of, kind of dreading it a little bit, but whatever, it'll work out. Get down, I get down to the church, and we have this like itinerary that's printed out every time of what we're going to do. And I looked at the itinerary before Adam talked, talked it through it with us, and I noticed that Tuesday night we were no longer going to the gun range. And I'm like, 
oh, I know he did this for me, but everyone's going to be disappointed because they're all going to be like, why aren't we going? We were going to go. And I'm sure he's not going to tell them why, but it's going to be, you know, I feel bad. And so he goes through the itinerary, talks through it, and says, what we're, I don't remember what we did instead that Tuesday night. And as he talks about it, nobody complains. Nobody says anything. It was almost as if he never even said that this is what we we're going to do the, ne- the next time we were here. And I remember thinking, like, what? everyone was so excited about it. Why is nobody, like, what's happening here? Now, I don't know this for sure, but I'm about 99.9% sure that what happened was Adam went and told the guys and said, look, here's the situation. Here's Dylan's story. Here's how this could be uncomfortable for him. And so we're not going to do it. And you know what those guys did? They laid aside their preferences of what they wanted to do, of going to a gun range and eating meat, which is nothing sinful about that, because they knew that it could be difficult for their brother. What happened? They used their knowledge to love. They laid aside what they wanted to do for the good of somebody else. And that is what Paul is saying here, that if you know something is hard or difficult for somebody and you do not find a way to love them through it, what are you doing? Again, knowledge that does not lead to love is not of God. And I will forever remember what happened during that cohort where I was seen on display in full display for me what happens when a group of guys choose love over what they wanted to do. And that is what Paul is saying here. So again, verse 11. I'll just reread. So the weak person, the brother or sister, uh, is uh, uh, we'll say this is a weak person, the brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Again, you know something is difficult for them, and if you do it anyway, you're ruining you're you're ruining it for them. Verse 12, he says this is which I find interesting. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. So, however, although eating the meat in a vacuum is no law is not sinful, if you eat it knowing that this might harm your brothers or sister, you are actually now committing a sin. And because of that, he says this, verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. In other words, Paul is asking this question. What is the most loving thing to do in this situation? That is how we actually demonstrate how much we know about God. And so I think if Paul was here today, and he was, well, I guess if we were in Paul's day and he was preaching this text, I always try to make some sort of practical application of what we're supposed to do with what Paul is saying. Here's what I think Paul would be saying. Don't eat the meat. That's what he's saying. Don't eat the meat. And for those of you that take the little handout to try to guess what the fill in the blank is before I get to it, which I found out last week my wife does, you're probably looking at, don't blank the meat. What in the world is he going to say? Don't eat the meat. That's what Paul is saying. Now, we're not in that first Corinthian context. So what is Paul saying to us today? He's saying essentially this. Put others before yourself. Put what you know about others before yourself because this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Now, I want to make a point here real quick. I think what can happen is we can get paralyzed by this point because we can think, well, I don't know the struggles that everybody is going through. So does this mean I should never do anything in the, in the chances that I might offend somebody? You have to remember the context of who Paul was writing to. He was writing to a church, probably at this point, a relatively small church. It wasn't like in our culture today where you can move and go about, you can live wherever you want. In this culture, you most people stayed where they were their entire life, which means that they had close relationships with one another. They knew each other, and they knew their church family. So they knew those that were around them what was difficult for them. So Paul is not saying here, don't do anything ever because you might offend somebody. What Paul is saying here is that those that you are in a relationship with, your coworkers that you know, your family, your friends, your church family, your community group, those that you actually know, if you know that there is something that is hard for them or difficult for them, the question is, what does it look like for you to put them before yourself? You can't do this for everybody, but you can do this for those that you are in a relationship with. Or to put it one more way, you could say it this way. 
that we are to love others the way Christ has loved us, or you should love others the way Christ has loved you. This is why we do it. We don't do it again, as we say often, to make God love us more, to pat ourselves on the back. We do all of this is because this is what exactly what Christ did for us. What did he do? He chose love. He gave his life down for us, not because God needs us in any way, but simply because he loves us and that anyone who trusts and follow him because of the sacrifice that Christ made, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, can, will do, can experience the grace and love of Christ, not because of you, because of him. And so in response to that, if you are, you and I are in Christ, what do we do? We love other people. So why? So as many people as possible can meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him so that they also can experience the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. That is why we do it, for the good of other people. In fact, Paul says this in a different letter he wrote, so it'll be on the screen. In Ephesians chapter 5, he wrote this, therefore, be imitators of God. So do this not because God said to do it, because this is exactly what God actually did in Christ. As dearly loved children, right, because you have been loved, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. What did he do? Laid aside his preferences out of love for you and for me. That is exactly what Christ did. And so we emulate that. Again, not, not so we can say, hey, look how awesome we are, but because we've actually experienced the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, and we want as many people as possible to experience that as well. Which, again, is why Paul says this. I want to point one more thing out in verse 12. He says, now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. What I find fascinating about this is that we have Paul, right, who we kind of make maybe consider the super Christian. He's planting churches. He's getting beaten. He's starving. He's doing all these things. And yet, he'd be what you considered a strong Christian, right? He knows everything. He knows what he should do, what he shouldn't do. But you notice what he does here. That Paul, right, this Christian that we might make think is more amazing than he actually is, falls down on the weak side of the argument. He says, knowing that it is not a sinful thing for me and I am not convicted not to eat the meat, because it is hard for you, I will refrain for you. That Paul is doing what he's telling us to do. He's using his knowledge to love the Corinthians. And so let me just ask this, this question for you. What would it look like for us to commit to doing this? Like, what would it look like for us, knowing what we knew about maybe our coworkers or about maybe our friends, to put their preferences above our own, to love them the way Christ has loved us? Or maybe more specifically, maybe you have too many friends or too many things going on. You're like, well, I don't know how to do this for everybody. That's fine. If you were here last week, what do we say? You can't do everything, but you can do something. That you and I can do, we should do for one what we wish we could do for many. And so if you're a part of New City, and we're talking about this Just One campaign all year, my question for you is this. How do you love your one? How do you serve your one? How do you put the preferences of your one above your own so that you can love, invite, and display the gospel to them? What does that look like for you and I to choose love instead of our preferences so that other people can experience the love of Christ the way we have? Or to put it another way, here is ultimately why we should not eat the meat or why we should put others before ourselves. Here's why. Because my problems are your problems. And your problems are my problems. Those that you are in a relationship with, you actually take on their problems. Again, let me give you another personal example for me. Uh, it was actually, it'll actually be 10 years ago uh, this week uh, that we lost my dad to a suicide. And of course, it was extremely hard and difficult and, and, and just a depressing time. And, and even in the midst of all of that, our church family came around and loved me and our family exceptionally well. 
Uh, one of my dad's dreams, his, his parents were not great parents. They never supported him and his brother. Um, they, they were always absent. One of his dreams was to, to be there for his kids, to support his kids, and if possible, uh, send them to college debt-free. Uh, and so what they did at the funeral, they said, instead of, you know, flowers or anything like that, if you've been impacted by the Dotson family at all, we ask that you just contribute to their college fund to help them pay for college. So not only did so many families do that, but personally I had friends come by and, and love me and serve me and do so many things for me. What happened? That my problems, my family's problems, became our community's problems. And a few months after that, um, I had a friend who was also a music major at the time who loved Jesus, was always serving people. He, had, he worked two jobs, super busy, um, and his car was always breaking down. And so I always felt bad for him. He, was like, he just seemed to catch tough break after tough break. Uh, well, after my dad died, I actually took my dad's car, which means I had my little Honda Civic that I could have sold for maybe $2,000, $2,500, which isn't necessarily a lot of money. But when you're in college, that's a lot of money, right? And so I had this thought. After everybody had done all these things for me, I remember thinking, I have to give my friend my car. And I share this not because I'm awesome or not because I did anything great. In fact, I would say it would actually have been a sin for me after experiencing the love and mercy and grace of so many other people to not in my small way do whatever I can to help somebody else in need. So my problems became my church family's problems. My friend's problems became my problems when I could do something to help him. In fact, one of the greatest memories I'll ever have, it was, it was before school had started yet, so um, not, the campus wasn't full. And I parked my car on the camp on the park on the camping uh, the what am I trying to say parking deck on campus. It was on the top floor. There's no cars there, and we were hanging out. I had him come over, and we walked up to the parking deck. I said, "I had to show you something." I got to hand him my keys and just see the look on his face and see whatever happened. And again, what happened there? That I had experienced the love and grace of mercy through people's lives and actions so tangibly that I I saw what it looked like for someone else to take my problems. That I said, "You know what? In any time, in any way that I can take someone else's problems on as my own, I have to do that." Why? Because I have a knowledge of what Christ has done for me. And so we have to produce love in our lives. We won't always get it perfect. We won't always get it right. right. But there ought to be a direction of love in our life. And that will actually show if we love Jesus. One more verse I'll read real quick. John chapter 13. It'll be on the screen. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. A pretty familiar passage. And he says this to them. He says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? Again, not if you have perfect church attendance, not if you give a lot of money away, not if you, uh, not if you, you read your Bible every day, pray all these. all these things are great, but ultimately, how will people know if you are in Christ? If you love one another. Now, here's what the good news is. You don't need an advanced theological degree. You don't need to know the original Hebrew and Greek language. You don't even know how to, you don't even, I, you thought you would have thought I would have got this right because I messed this up first service. You don't even have to know how to read, right? Most of human history, people don't know how to read. I remember a few weeks, a month or two ago, when we were in Guatemala with our partner church down there, so many of the villagers don't know how to read, but they had experienced the love of Christ and seeing how some of them loved and served others demonstrated they actually knew God. They knew what the gospel was. They could not tell you what John 3.16 said, but they could say, God has changed, transformed my life, the death and burial, resurrection of Christ, and so I'm going to love other people. And so I hope you are encouraged to know that your knowledge of God has nothing to do with how much you actually know intellectually about God. Instead, it has to do with this, this is really the bottom line this morning that your knowledge of God is equivalent to your love of people. In other words, if we come here on Sunday mornings and we're studying God's word and it does not drive us to love, then what are we doing? 
Like, we're not here to, as a pep rally. We're not here to make us feel better. We don't gather in community groups just to read God's word. All those things are important, but ultimately it should drive us to love one another, encourage one another, and make a difference in other people's life. Why? Because of the gospel, which is simply this, that Jesus came. This is why Paul writes this letter. This is why we gather on Sundays to worship the king who came, gave his life for us, that the perfect death that we could not live, choosing out of love to sacrifice his life for us, uh, died and resurrected and defeated death. Why? So that anybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter how much money you made, no matter how bad you have screwed up in your life, can receive the grace, mercy, and love of Christ. What did Christ do? He loved us. And when we, if we actually know that, if we actually experience the love of Christ, it will drive us to love other people. You won't always get it right. You will not be perfect. But if we know Christ, it will show us that we actually care. If you're familiar with a few months ago, there was a shooting uh, in April in California uh, at a synagogue. One person died. Three other people were injured. And the guy that, that did the shooting, it's actually quite chilling. He, he wrote this manifesto uh, before he did it. And I don't remember if it was just a journal entry or if he posted it online. Um, and he, he's, he's writing about all these things. And some of the things he said were, were wrong and hateful and clearly, clearly untrue. But some of the things he said about God were true. Like he was quoting Bible verses. He was talking about certain characteristics God's had. And what, what, what happens when you read that? What was so chilling to me was he had a basic knowledge of God. He knew who God was. He had talked about justice and wrath and all these things. But what happened? By his actions, he showed us that he did not actually know God. He knew about God, but he did not know God. Why? Because instead of loving people, his knowledge of God led him to hate, led him to evil, led him to violence. Now, for you and for I, we're, we're not going around doing that, right? But are there areas in our life where we know people are struggling and we're not stepping up to the plate because we're putting our preferences before other people, right? Your knowledge of God is equivalent to your love of people. So let us be a people. Let us be a church that knows that, that recognizes that, that sees Jesus and does whatever we can to help other people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And how will they do that? Not by you answering all their questions, not by you having your entire Bible memorized. Every time they have a question, there's a verse for it. They will only know that by how you love them. That is why, again, we've talked about this idea of just one this entire year. That if you want to make a difference in somebody's life, you do not need to know everything. You do not need an advanced degree. You need to love them and see what Christ will do in their life because of, because of the love they've experienced through you. Again, your knowledge of God is equivalent to your love of people. The gospel is that Christ came and loved us. And in response, we follow him because we've experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And again, at New City Church, our mission is this to help as many people as possible to meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And they will do that when we love them. Again, your knowledge of God is equivalent to your love of 